the final chapter, and it's on page 929 in the Church Bibles, and if you have a large print Bible, that's page 1,443, Jonah chapter 4. You may recognize the uh, picture uh, on the screen. That's a picture of Albert Einstein. And he was uh, the most famous uh, physicist in the world when he was alive. And is probably uh, the most famous physicist that there ever has been. He's most famous for having developed the theory of relativity. And he won the Nobel Prize in 1921, not for this theory alone, but for services to theoretical physics. But at the end of the description of why he won the Nobel Prize, it said this, and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect. Now, most of us have heard of the theory of relativity, but... Many of us may not have heard of the law of the photoelectric effect. And I'm not going to explain exactly what it is, except to say that the effect was very important in the development of what we now know as quantum physics. Now, quantum physics is very complex, but in short, it looks at how particles behave and finds that they do not behave in ways that are certain, but only in ways that scientists can predict. And this was revolutionary for the study of physics because classical physics believes that, or teaches, that everything in the universe uh, uh, runs according to strict rules of cause and effect. Most famously, every action has a reaction. Although Einstein helped to develop the theory of quantum physics, he ended his life hating it because it showed that the universe that he had been studying was unpredictable, according to him. As he got older, he used to argue against the theory of quantum physics, despite the evidence stacking up to show that at the deep level, particles do not behave in ways that classical physics would teach. He famously said, God does not play dice. Einstein had a worldview that the universe must work in ways that we can understand and that we can predict with certainty. But the deeper that he got into the workings of the universe, the more complex and incomprehensible it became. He spent the latter years of his life trying to come up with a theory of everything, but went to his grave without finding that equation. Now, Einstein was right that God does not play dice, but to us, he may appear to do so. 
because his ways are beyond our understanding. And like the universe that reflects his glory, the deeper we delve into the workings of God, the more complex he becomes. And that's a good thing. Because God would not be much of a God if we could make an equation and say, there he is, so that he can fit into our brains. But like Einstein, we can have a worldview that fits God into an equation that we can understand. We want to have a God who works in a way that we can predict and that we are comfortable with. But in the book of Jonah, indeed throughout the whole of Scripture, We have a God who is anything but predictable, anything but safe, and in Jonah especially, we see what happens when worldviews collide. Now, Jonah has been acting according to his worldview throughout the book, and we've seen him behave in strange ways, but in chapter 4, we come to see what his worldview is. So in chapter 4, we're going to read from uh, verse 1 and to the end of the chapter. And in the context, by the way, Nineveh has just repented. They have turned to God uh, from their sin, and God relented of the destruction which he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord Isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Now, Nineveh has just repented. And so you might expect Jonah to be overjoyed at this. He has been to a hard place, a place where there was much bloodshed, 
and wickedness, the, the, the most bloodthirsty people in the world, and the, the city, it seems, has, it, it, the, the whole city, it seems, has repented at the preaching of Jonah. He is, by all accounts, the most successful preacher in the whole of the Old Testament. I remember when I was a teenager and I was alone as a Christian. I had friends at school, none of which believed. And I, went, uh, I met my Sunday school teacher for coffee one day and I said that I was feeling lonely because I didn't have any other Christian friends of my age. And she said, well, why don't we pray that God would bring uh, some of your friends to faith? And in God's uh, great kindness, one of my friends, uh, very shortly after that, came to know the Lord for himself. And I had a friend who was a Christian. He is now a brother in Christ. And I remember my excitement that I could go to my Sunday school teacher, and we met again, and with joy, we celebrated together that one of my friends had become a Christian. That was one person. Imagine if I went to uh, Warsaw Town Center and I preached in the open air and the whole of that town center came to Christ. We would come to church and we would be celebrating together the repentance of all those people. And so look at Jonah's reaction in chapter 4 verse 1. It's, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And you could actually translate it a bit stronger than we read here. It literally says, it was an evil to Jonah. A great evil. It was evil to Jonah. Not to God. Not to the people of Nineveh who'd received God's mercy. But this was an evil. A great evil to Jonah that Nineveh had repented. Why? Well, in Jonah's worldview, he could not bear that God does not work how we might not like. His extraordinary prayer in verse 2 shows why he was angry. And it just is extraordinary. Uh, listen to verse 2 again. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You can imagine Jonah being at home in Geth Hepha, where he lived. And God says to him, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Now, when we read chapter 1, we read that Jonah runs away. But here, we read what happened just before he runs away. You can imagine him at home, and God says this to him, and he says, if I go to Nineveh, I know what's going to happen. I bet he's going to save them. I bet he's going to show mercy, because God is a God of grace and compassion. I bet he's going to show love to them. They're going to get saved if I go there. He's just indignant that God would show mercy to Nineveh. He doesn't like Nineveh. He doesn't like those people being saved. He doesn't want God's mercy to be shown to his enemies. And he knows that if God sends him to his enemies, that this God is a God who is gracious and compassionate. And he even says he tries to forestall it. He, 
that, that indicates that he knows it's going to happen, but he just he so doesn't want it to happen, he tries to delay it, hoping God may send someone else. He's actually accusing God here of being good. How dare you be good, God? Well, the words Jonah uses in verse 2 to describe God are quoted in Scripture a number of times. But they first come in Exodus chapter 34, when God showed himself to Moses. When God showed himself to Moses, this was after Israel, the people whom Jonah comes from, had sinned against God by worshipping a golden cow. God treated Israel with grace and compassion and mercy by forgiving them when, they, when Moses prayed. God uh, could have treated, Nineveh, uh, treated Israel just like Jonah wanted to treat Nineveh. In fact, Jonah had prayed in chapter 2, verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Well, Israel had clung to a worthless golden cow, but Moses prayed and God, it says, relented, just like he did to Nineveh here. Israel deserved to be destroyed because of idolatry, but received mercy from God. Jonah had received mercy from being delivered from death in the sea, but Jonah didn't believe that this mercy which had been shown to Israel in the wilderness and many times since, and to him when he was in the sea, should be given to anybody else. This same prophet who celebrated God saving his life in chapter 2, now in verse 3, because God has shown mercy to someone else, in verse 3 wants to die. Literally what he's saying here is that I want to see Nineveh saved over my dead body. Literally, God, kill me if you're going to save them. Now, one of the the themes of Jonah that we see many times is the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to remember that God is God, we are not, and then to act according to that. Whereas here, rather than believing that God is God and we are not, Jonah believes that he knows how God should act. Jonah knows best. Jonah knows what God should do, and God isn't getting it right. But God does not work according to how we might like. He has a plan and purposes that are way beyond what ours might be and what we might like. Now, in one sense, it is amusing to see Jonah here, isn't it? We, we laugh at Jonah for, for accusing God of being good and saying, I knew you were good and kind and so on. We, we, we're amused at what he does here, but it's easy for us to sit over him and say, well, I would be delighted if anyone came to faith, whoever they are. If they came to faith in Christ, I would be delighted. And that may well be true, but we don't always like the way that God's mercy is distributed, if we're honest. What about the church down the road that is blessed when we don't agree with everything that they're doing? What about the Christian that 
we perceive as lazy or not all out for Jesus like we are, and everything just seems to work out well for them. What about the person who's been elected for office in the church that we don't think warrants it? Because they're not quite as holy as we are. I'm often troubled myself by ministers and ministries that appear to be blessed and people become believers through their preaching and it turns out that they're caught up in some scandal. What about the prayer that isn't being answered or not answered in the way that we would want? We don't always like the way that God's mercy is distributed. On the other hand, we may not like the way that God's justice is shown either. When someone dies in unbelief that we've been praying for, when someone dies in unbelief that we think is a lovely person or a member of our family, what about the sin that finds me out and I have to suffer the consequences when others are getting away with it? Or so it seems. To us, these things can seem very wrong. And we can become angry and self-righteous. Notice Jonah's self-righteousness here. I said against the word of the Lord. I tried to forestall as if God was wrong. I want to die. It's all about me, me, me. He's self-righteous. He's telling God what God should do. Because God isn't acting how he would like. And God asked Jonah in verse 4 if it's right for him to be angry. But Jonah doesn't answer. Well, the reason God seems very wrong and we can become very angry with God is because our worldview can be very small. And Jonah's worldview was very small indeed. It was, a, it was really a worldview that revolved around him and his own people. Jonah's worldview was a concern for self. God asks him a question in verse 4, is it right that you are angry? And Jonah answers in verse 5 really with his body language. He goes out of the city and he sits down to the east of it. He makes a shelter and he watches what is going to happen. Apparently, he's still hoping that God may still yet destroy the city. Only after seeing what God does can he answer God's question. If God destroys the city, then Jonah would say, sorry God, I was wrong to be angry. But if God doesn't destroy the city and he does show the mercy and he carries that mercy out, then Jonah would, in his worldview, be right to be angry with God. So Jonah goes out and he sits in judgment over God. He is telling God, I'll wait and see if you do what's right. That's what's going on in verse 5. He's waiting to see if God would do the right thing. In verses 6 to 8, God then teaches Jonah a lesson about their respective worldviews. Notice how in verse 6, three times... In, uh, sorry, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we read the word provided. God provided a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. Just like earlier on in the, in, the, uh, in the book, he provides a storm and a fish. God is the sovereign king 
over all of creation. He's in control of all of it. And he even uses the creation to teach Jonah a lesson about who is the real king and who really is in charge of this world. Well, the plant grows up and it grows over Jonah and it provides him with shade. We don't know exactly what the plant is. Again, like the fish, I think it's a, a miracle that's going on here. And it grow, we don't need to, to figure out, uh, it, it could only be this plant, this plant, or this plant, because they grow quickly. No, I think God is, like the fish, providing something miraculous to teach Jonah a lesson here. And the plant gives Jonah relief from the sun in a way that Jonah's shelter obviously wasn't providing. And the plant, we read, eased his discomfort. And that word discomfort is an interesting word because it's the same word in the original language that is used for evil or calamity. So uh, like in the storm in chapter 1. What God's doing here is there is an evil being uh, shown against Jonah with this uh, scorching sun, but God is showing mercy to Jonah by providing him with this plant. God's mercy provides him relief from the the judgment, really, that Jonah is deserving. And we read how Jonah felt about the plant. Look what it says about the plant at the end of verse 6. He was very happy. Not just happy, very happy. That's as as happy as could be. This is the best thing that could possibly have happened. This is This is amazing. In fact, it's the very opposite of the very wrong in verse 1. In verse 1, this is, this is the, the worst day in history. But now, all of a sudden, everything's turned. This is the best day ever because I've got a plant that's covering me and I'm not hot anymore. There was great joy at the blessing that God has shown him. This is amazing. He was as happy about the plant as he was angry about Nineveh's deliverance. But in verse 7, God provides a worm which chews the plant up. Now, worms in the Bible are almost always used, I think think always used, to signify decay. And here we see the decay of a plant, which shows us that all earthly blessings like this will decay. Our health, our possessions, our looks, our careers will all die out eventually. But for Jonah, this temporal plant was what gave him his true joy. He worshipped his comfort and it made him happy until, in verse 8, it is taken away. God provides a scorching east wind which would have directly impacted Jonah who was sitting in the east And the sun blazed on his head. And now he is suffering because he hasn't got his comfort anymore. The comfort's gone. The plant's disappeared. And again, at the end of verse 8, he wants to die. You know, what a day. He's angry and wants to die. He's over the moon at this plant. And then at the end of the day again, he wants to die again. Because when something goes wrong, when his worldview isn't being fulfilled of, it's all about me, he's angry again. 
Now, Jonah's worldview was a concern for himself, for his own people, that God would bless them and them only, and for his own comfort, that God should give me the comfort that I deserve. I'm a prophet of God. I deserve this plant. I deserve God's mercy. But he's angry with God because God makes him uncomfortable. And uncomfortable is not according to his worldview. Now, you will know the real holiness of a Christian, not when you see them pray in public or speak of Jesus when the sun is shining, but you'll really see holiness when the car breaks down, when the ceiling is leaking, and when that big bill comes in. Now, I know that there are much bigger areas of suffering than these which we could talk about and which also show whether we are really believers or not. But most of our daily lives are living in the mundane, are living in the everyday things that go wrong. We don't all have a crisis every single day, but every single day something could go wrong and often does go wrong in the little mundane things. And our true holiness is often shown in those moments. For Jonah, it was, it was just a plant. This isn't Job chapter 1 and 2, where everything does go wrong for him. That is a life-changing catastrophe. This is a plant. And I think we're supposed to see that this is a small thing. But he's reacting as if it was Job chapter 1 and 2, where everything has gone wrong, you see? And with the loss of this little plant, Jonah wants to die because God was not conforming to his worldview of him deserving to be comfortable. God is not a genie in a lamp that we can rub and get our three wishes from. I want my family to be well, to be financially secure, and for people to think I'm wonderful. And if I don't have any of those three things, you're not really my God. We can make an idol out of our comfort and get ever so angry when God makes us uncomfortable with his plan. And then we have to answer the same question as Jonah does in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. Now that's not to say that it's not annoying when our ceiling leaks as we did recently, that's why it's on my mind. <laughs> or when we, we, we get sad when we lose our job. But when those things happen, as annoying as they may be, it is wrong to accuse God of getting the plan wrong and being angry with him because he's made us uncomfortable and that's just not right. He is the God who will work not according to our selfish worldview, not according to what we might like, but according to a much bigger plan. Jonah was concerned with himself and how he saw the universe working. But in verses 10 and 11, God shares his worldview with Jonah. And it is way bigger than Jonah's. God's worldview is a greater concern. 
God shows us his view on the world by showing how small Jonah's is. In verse 9 and 10, uh, the, the key word in these verses is the word concern. In some translations, it's translated as pity, which brings across perhaps the meaning a little bit more, because it's more than I'm bothered about it, or it's a bit irritating. It's literally to have tears in one's eyes, to have tears in our eyes over something. And so with that context of what concern means, look again at verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah is concerned. He has pity. He has tears in his eyes over a plant. And God points out three faults with Jonah's worldview that that shows up in the plant. First of all, he does not tend it. Jonah had tears in his eyes over this plant, but his pity for the plant was just pure self-interest. He wasn't a gardener who attended the plant and and planted it himself and had worked at it growing. He was only interested in what this plant could do for him. It was the, 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 the pity of self-interest, not over the plant itself. He, he didn't tend it. He did not make it grow. Jonah had tears in his eyes over this plant, but he didn't deserve it in the first place because he hadn't even grown it himself. It was a gift of God's grace. He didn't merit it. God was being kind to him. He couldn't say to God, God, I deserve, you deserve, I deserve you give me this plant. He didn't even know the plant was coming. It was just a gift. He didn't make it grow. And then thirdly, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. In other words, it's so transient. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Jonah had tears in his eyes. He was so worked up about something that was so temporary, so insignificant in the bigger scheme of things. But then God nails Jonah's sin to him in verse 11 by showing how God's pity, God's concern is over something far greater than this little plant. Look at verse 11. And should not I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God's concern for Nineveh was not out of self-interest or need for himself. It was pure compassion for others that were in need. Jonah was interested in the plant because it was serving him. God was concerned for Nineveh because he loved them. Jonah didn't do anything that, for God to give him that plant, but Nineveh had repented. Now, although repentance doesn't mean that they deserved God's grace, God promises to respond to repentance. And most importantly of all, one plant is of way less significance 
than a city of 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left. And not knowing your right hand from your left is an expression that means they lacked moral judgment, and so they needed revelation from God. They needed God to show them their sin so that they could repent. They didn't know their right hand from their left. How much more important is that city, Jonah, that you hate and that you have no compassion for and no concern for? How much more important are they, eternal souls, than this little plant that in comparison is nothing? If our worldview is about ourselves, we can get so worked up about our tiny little kingdom going wrong that we forget that God has a much bigger plan in place. Now, what this does not mean, and, and hear this, it doesn't mean that God is not concerned when things go wrong in our life, big and small. God is concerned on the drive home when your tire bursts. He cares for the sparrow. That's, that's all true. It doesn't mean he's not, he doesn't care about the little things. But it does mean that we should have far bigger concerns in our lives than our own comfort. And so the question that we have at this point is, what concerns you most in your life? What is it that really does bring or would bring tears to your eyes like it does to Jonah here? Do you get as upset about the fact that our village in Pelsall, where this church is, most likely has 10,000 people on their way to hell as you do about your iPhone screen smashing when you dropped it? Now, both of those things are important to God, but you see where our heart should be, right? Are you more concerned about investing in some of the work of the missions we've been looking at in our table talks recently, or making sure that you have the newest and latest of everything? What are you more concerned about? Are we more concerned about God being glorified in our obedience to his word that would have an impact on the life of unbelievers, or are we more concerned about what they might think about us if we start living for Jesus? and glorifying God in body and spirit, and telling them about Jesus, letting our faith be known. What are you more concerned about, your reputation or the opportunity for them to hear about Jesus? As we read this, we should all of us be convicted that we need to pray that God would break our hearts for those concerns which concern him. To have a concern for those who are in great need of God's mercy. In this regard, let me give you some, some ways that can increase your concern. How can we increase our concern? Well, first of all, perhaps a good place to start would be praying. Get prayer updates from the church that are sent out 
or printed off each week. Get the prayer updates from our missionaries and read about what's going on across the world. And pray carefully for those things, asking God that you would have concern for what's going on in his kingdom all over the world. If we're really concerned and we know that God is the only one who can save, come to prayer meeting where together we can pray that God would have mercy upon the lost. Coming to prayer together shows a concern. Give generously and sacrificially to the work of God's kingdom. That shows concern. We become much more concerned about that which we are giving financially to. And just getting involved in the life of the church, ministering in ways that show God's mercy. Get involved in the life of the church that we're part of. And if you want to find out more about doing that, then come and speak to one of the elders and we'd love to to be able to plug you into whatever it is that we feel you can help in. We need to have a greater concern for the concerns of our God than for the transient and insignificant plants of this world. And we do all of this in imitation of one who shows us the opposite of Jonah. The one who is a greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. Listen to where his concern was. As he enters the city of Jerusalem, the very city where people were going to put him to death, listen to his words of concern or compassion. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He longs to help those in Jerusalem, those ones who are about to kill him. He has compassion on them. Jonah, in chapter 4, marches out of the city, sits down, and longs for it to be destroyed. But what does Jesus do? Well, he goes outside of the city, and he hangs on a cross, longing that they would be saved, praying that, Father, forgive them, longing for people to come to know him and to be forgiven of their sins. Unlike Jonah, at the end of chapter 4, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Einstein was right that God doesn't play dice. Although it may not appear, it may, it may appear so to us. But God's plans and purposes are working for his glory and for the eternal good of his people. So when we don't perhaps like what God is doing, we need to look higher and further to a greater plan that is beyond what we can possibly comprehend and trust in the God who has shown us such great mercy. The book of Jonah ends with a question, 
that Jonah does not answer. But the question is also to us as well. Are we prepared to accept the fact that God loves our enemies and works in ways that we may not like, but are always good? God is always good. He is always right, even when we might not like what he appears to be doing. And as we answer that question, may it be from an understanding of the fact that God has been incredibly merciful to us. It's ever so hard to lack mercy for others when we meditate and think hard on what God has done in our lives. And a great place that we can come to remember that is the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table where we remember God's mercy to us and we thank him that his plan included concern for us. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's respond as we sing. There's a wideness in God's mercy. And as we sing, let us do so with thankful hearts that that wideness means that we can come into the kingdom of God because our sins can be forgiven because of Jesus has died for us.